Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Up next, Out Loud with John O'Caldwell, part of the Gingrich 360 Network. The journey of Weldon Angelos from an up-and-coming music producer to a new face of criminal justice reform wasn't pretty. In fact, it was cruel, torturous, and included a 55-year prison sentence. It also included a full pardon from the one President Donald J. Trump. Today, we hear Weldon's story. This is Out Loud with Gianno Caldwell. Welcome back to Out Loud with Gianno Caldwell. I'm Gianno Caldwell, and I have a really interesting and fascinating show this week. My guest is someone with a remarkable life story that would make for a Hollywood script. His name is Weldon Angelos. I'll save most of the details for our conversation, but to give you a basic overview, in the early 2000s, Angelos was a young and promising hip-hop producer. He had a budding new record label, Extravagant Records, and was on his way to the top. But then, Angelo sold a few hundred dollars worth of cannabis, also known as marijuana or weed, to a police informant over multiple transactions, and everything went downhill. Angelos had no prior criminal record, but because the informant said Angelos had a firearm strapped to his ankle, he was sentenced to 55 years in prison. Federal law made 55 years the minimum sentence allowed, even though this was a first-time marijuana offense. Eventually, after well over a decade in prison, Angelos was released in 2016 thanks to a, a major bipartisan effort. And then last year, President Trump fully pardoned him. Today, Angelos is the new face of criminal justice reform, especially cannabis-related issues. I'll ask him about what he went through, what he's doing now, and his work with President Trump on criminal justice reform. Let's go. Well, then, I'm really excited to have you on Out Loud with Gianno Caldwell. We've been talking about cannabis uh, in terms of on television, radio, media. The country's been talking about it for quite a while. And your story, I think, is one 
which is one of the most fascinating I've heard. I learned about it many, many years ago, probably about four years ago when you were released from jail, when Senator Mike Lee of Utah, actually, I believe he wrote an op-ed on it. So I want to just start off the conversation before we dig into cannabis, uh, the criminal justice reform aspect of it. I wanted to have you take my listeners through your life story and what happened to you. Tell us about what life was like before you were arrested and ultimately sentenced to prison in 2004. Yeah. So um, before that, I would say back going back to around 95, 96, I started working on a career in the music industry. Um, I had um, somehow made my way into the hip hop world um, with a lot of the folks over at Death Row Records including uh, Snoop Dogg's group, the Dog Pound, and uh, Tupac's group, the Outlaws. And a few years after that, I ended up founding my own record label, and Snoop Dogg you know, gave me an opportunity to produce some music with him, ended up at his house making some records and producing a whole album uh, with Snoop. And you know, my career just sort of took off from there, and I started working with some of the biggest names in the industry, and I sort of uh, put myself in the crosshairs of the, of the federal government um, you know, back in my hometown of Salt Lake City, Utah, where I was bringing, you know, Snoop and, and Mac Dre and all the people I was working with, you know, to do shows and, and just kind of open up the scene there. And, uh, you know, it was something that was kind of new, you know, to that to that town at the time. And so the authorities thought there must be something going on here, you know, outside of music. And so they sent a confidential informant to come try to, you know, see what was going on. And, you know, really all it was was making records and, and smoking cannabis. Um, and so the informant decided to buy some of the cannabis. And it was just like a few hundred dollars worth on three occasions. It was nothing, no profit made. It was just like, here you go. Um, and the federal government attempted to, you know, get guns and, and coke and meth. And, you know, that wasn't what was happening. You know, we were just making music and, and you know, smoking cannabis and um when they realized that they weren't going to get anything else, they indicted me um, on a few counts, hoping that that would lead to enough pressure to bring down people in hip hop. And when it didn't, and, and we laughed at them for what they were trying to do, they secured superseding indictments where they ended up turning these three cannabis charges, you know, worth $900 total into a 20 count federal indictment where I'm facing a hundred years of mandatory imprisonment um, because of, you know, how, how the case, you know, uh, uh, initially started, um, you know, there was really no um, trust uh, from me and my attorneys and on their end. And so, you know, it forced a trial and I, you know, won some counts, but lost most of them and ended up with a 55 year sentence. Uh, the sentence was so extreme. Even the sentencing judge who was a very conservative George W. Bush appointee, um, it caused him to balk at the sentence and, um, you know, question the legitimacy uh, of, of the system and of the prosecutor's charging decisions. And so he actually called on the president that appointed him to pardon me as he was handing down the sentence. He, he said, you know, my hands are tied. I can't do anything. But this sentence is cruel, unjust and irrational. And so I call on the president to, you know, commute the sentence. Um, and then a few years later, he stepped down stepped down from office, became my chief advocate, and other people joined. Other people joined his chorus. You know, we had uh, uh, Janet Reno, who was the attorney general for Bill Clinton. 
Um, we have a, a hundred and something, you know, former federal judges, former federal prosecutors, um, and then a former prosecutor in that office who didn't, you know, wasn't assigned to my case. His name was Mike Lee. He was elected to the Senate in 2010, and he remembered what my judge said. I mean, the whole legal community across the country knew my judge and his his 67-page opinion. And so, you know, this unlikely allies coalition to get me out was sort of, you know, born. And, and, it, and it consisted of, you know, friends from the music industry, you know, people like Snoop Dogg and, and, and Bonnie Rayett and Mike Epps and uh, Alicia Keys with these political figures like Mike Lee and, and Cory Booker um, and Rand Paul and, and, and even the Koch brothers, you know, eventually, you know, got behind, you know, the effort to get me out. And, and it was more to do with not myself being, you know, an extraordinary person. It was my judge um, that really, you know, made all of these individuals uh, rally around my, um, my cause to get me out of jail. Now, you know, I've, I had never, ever, ever in my life, and I'm sure most people can attest, you don't rarely, if ever, I mean, this is the one situation I, I would say, uh, but you rarely, if ever, see a judge say that, hey, I don't want to give you this sentence, but it's mandatory minimum. That's what we have to do. But then to go from there to then be an advocate for you uh, as a Republican, even more so, especially, you know, we, Republicans are tough on crime. Uh, to to say that this was unreasonable and then have other Republicans as well as Democrats come together to say that it was unreasonable treatment for the crime. Uh, now, we got to keep in mind, de- uh, states all across the country have decriminalized uh, a small amounts of marijuana, 27 states, including the District of Columbia. Polling has showed that almost 70 percent of Americans, if not more at this point, believe in legalization of marijuana. But I got to ask you this question is during this time you were in your music career, you're dealing with people like Snoop Dogg, uh, who's obviously legendary and you never really see him without marijuana smoking anyway. I mean, that's what it's been for years. But why were you selling marijuana to begin with? Yeah. So, so like I said, it wasn't like, you know, we were out there, Hey, who wants some weed? This guy came and asked to buy some of our weed. It wasn't like, you know, it was $300 worth. I mean, I just lo- I just signed a multi-million dollar record deal. So $300 worth of cannabis uh, and you make 50 bucks or something is not a profitable. I didn't do it for profit. So this informant was a guy that, you know, used to be from my hood when, when I was younger. You know, he was from our gang. And, and, and so he got out of prison. You know, he did, he, did a, he did a nickel, went to prison, did five, got out. He caught another case and he had just had a kid or at least, you know, was going to have a kid. And so he didn't want to go back. He was like, I'm done with this shit. I'm done with this lifestyle. And at this point, you know, I was in the music. I was out of the street life and all that. You know, I was done with that. He got out and made it seem like he was too. So he was like, I just need to make some money to, you know, I got, I got, I got a kid and I just need to, you know, hustle. And so I'm like, all right, here you go. Take some, you know, go do what you got to do. And so, um, you know, that's really how it started. And, um, you know, all over that little bit of money and, you know, he was asked, he was, you know, they were trying to come up with enough, um, you know, charges to pressure me and hopes that it would lead to the arrest of a famous rap artist. And, you know, the feds had been wanting to get Snoop, Snoop for a long time. Anyone, they really wanted anyone. They, you know, they'd never seen that here. And, and another reason, you know, that's just, you know, one of the motives. The other motive was, you know, what we found out later was that some of these prosecutors and agents looked at me like I was bringing Ebola, you know, into Utah and they wanted to keep it out. And so, um, 
And, 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 you know, a lot of these prosecutors and agents, they're not from like Salt Lake City itself. Salt Lake City is very diverse. So a lot of people, you know, they just say Utah, oh, it's all Mormons. Well, when you go to the city, it's very diverse. It's very liberal. But when you leave the city and, and the county, it gets very conservative and very Mormon. And so that, you know, that's where, you know, most of these prosecutors and agents are from. They didn't want that culture being brought to the city. Um, and so, you know, that it, it, there was two prompts. You know, it was a very racially motivated case. Um, and so in, in addition, if they felt like they could, you know, arrest uh, somebody famous and, and get some headlines and, you know, get some promotions, you know, all the better. And I just want to note that the lead prosecutor in this case got an award from the the attorney general under the George Bush administration, he got an award with my name on it for the successful prosecution of Weldon Angelos. And so, um, you know, the case was, it was a big case. And then the, the lead gang unit officer who was a state agent named Jason Mazaron, he got promoted to be the chief of police for a, a city called uh, Midville, um, which is just, you know, outside of Salt Lake. And so, you know, th- th- this is a whole motivation for prosecuting me. It had nothing to do with, oh, we, we really want to take this guy down for this little bit of weed. You know, it, it, there was other motivations at play um, that had nothing to do with justice. Right. So they, they wanted to get you so they can uh, really get you to flip on Snoop or somebody else like that to, to, to really have a big win, as we know normally happens when prosecutors get involved at any level, whether they be federal prosecutor, state or local, local county, whatever the deal may be. So let me ask you this question. Do you believe that you should have went to jail at all for this or you just feel that the sentence was obviously way too harsh? Well, I'll I'll frame it this way. And this is something my judge actually looked into when he was trying to figure out, you know, what he could do besides sentence me. And so he was getting information from various sources. He asked the jury what an appropriate sentence would be. He reached out to the state system to figure out what would what would be the amount of time I would serve in the state if I were prosecuting the state. Because what happened really is a state charge. It wasn't federal. There was nothing uniquely federal about these charges. It was just the way they charged it, because under the state law, I couldn't be prosecuted to to much extent. And so he found out that I could have received a misdemeanor and and probation um, and, and that if had I went to jail in the state system, it probably would have been, you know, six months or less. And this is back in 2002 when my case happened. I, I got charged in 2002. So in 2002, back then, I probably could have, you know, and I probably wouldn't have even seen jail or a felony because I met, it was my first adult offense. And so, you know, that was telling. And even my prosecutor's boss, um, who was the head U.S. attorney, said, you know, he felt that under the state system, I probably would have got probation um, realistically. Um, you know, even though the max, you know, w- would have been, you know, zero to five years, but under the, the state guidelines, uh, it would have been zero months. And so, you know, should I have went to prison? Well, under the state law, according to the state law, no. Um, and so I don't think no prison was warranted. I mean, it's it's some weed, you know, um, and I had a career, you know, I had some young kids. Um, you know, I just made it out of poverty myself with a you know unique opportunity to do something that, you know, only few in this world get to do. And it was taken away over some bullshit, in my opinion. And the judge, of course, who presided over your case called the sentence unjust, cruel, and irrational and wanted you to receive less time. But according to him, there was nothing that he can do. Well, um, so, you know, all he could do, he felt like he could do was go down kicking and screaming. And, and you know, that's what he did. And, and he felt like, you know, a lot of people didn't like 
that, that a judge gets emotionally attached to a case. And so, you know, a lot of people asked him, like, why did you get so involved in the case? And he was like, well, somebody had to speak up for Mr. Angelos, you know, because obviously he couldn't do it himself. And so it had to be him. And so, you know, when I was in the courtroom, you know, I, I knew that there was an effort to find the sentence unconstitutional. And so I knew my judge spent a lot of time, you know, researching this and he, we briefed it, you know, over and over and over trying to figure out is, there, is it unconstitutional for him to impose such a lengthy sentence on such low level conduct. Um, unfortunately, our Supreme Court precedent is lacking under the Eighth Amendment. And so, you know, he could not find a way out. And, you know, I kind of figured I was going to get, you know, the minimum mandatory, which was 55 years in one day, um, possibly more, um, even though he was trying to impose a sentence around 10 years, um, which was still the max under the guidelines, because the prosecutors could have charged me under the sentencing guidelines rather than the mandatory minimums where I would have received, you know, anywhere from six and a half to, you know, maximum of 10 years, which likely would have been probably around like seven or eight if they would have charged me under the guidelines. Um, but they wanted to charge me under the mandatory minimums, you know, to try to, uh, you know, get me to flip or just to put max amount of pressure on me to accept a very unjust plea offer. And so, you know, when I was in the courtroom and, and you know, I, I didn't know what the judge was going to do. My attorney didn't know. He had never encountered a case like this before. So we, none of us knew what was going to happen. And, you know, when it came time, you know, I knew what was happening when he said, after careful deliberation, I reluctantly conclude, I knew it was over with. He said, I reluctantly conclude that I have no choice but to impose a 55 year sentence you know, and then he imposed one day um, for the additional charges. And so, um, you know, it was over with. And, you know, that's when, you know, I knew the fight to get me out began. You know, we were we had multiple attempts to appeal the case, you know, to no avail. You know, our court system, our appellate system is a joke. Um, you know, it, you rarely succeed. They, you know, stack the, the, the deck against you. And so, you know, we really had no other option but to hope, uh, you know, a progressive president would, you know, get elected and, um, you know, we could seek a uh, commutation. Before we move on, we need to take a break. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. 
Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new natural hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the natural hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the natural hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indulge your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. Let me ask you this question. What was it like in that moment when you heard from the judge and he handed you down a 55-year sentence for something that's clearly not worthwhile 55 years? And I'm even listening to you say, well, if it was under a, a sentencing guidelines, then maybe it would have been six to ten years. This this wasn't drug kingpin level <laughs> crime. It was a crime, so we would call it what it is. But it wasn't something like you're selling crack and and you getting all these people addicted. This was less than a thousand dollars. And honestly speaking, nowadays you, I've seen people with the cannabis as I've been researching and, and talking about it. That doesn't really get you much these days if you spend a few hundred dollars on cannabis. So it's it's kind of interesting to hear your story. What was it like in that moment when you heard 55 years? Well, like I said, you know, I was expecting something around then because the three there's three charges out of those 16. One of them was five years. The other two are 25, and they must be served consecutively. So I knew there was at least a 55-year mandatory minimum just on those three counts alone. And it was because the way the agents and prosecutors stacked my sentence. Now, for instance, if they really thought I was this dangerous person that they made me out to be before the judge and trial and his sentencing, they really made me out to be this, you know, dangerous, you know, gun slinging, you know, kingpin with $300 worth of cannabis. You know, it was really ridiculous. They looked really stupid. And they tried to compare my case to be as being worse than, second degree murder, worse than child rape, worse than terrorism. Um, and, it, you know, it was laughable. Um, and so, um, yeah, it was just real crazy, man. And, um, you know, the judge, he, he had no choice. And so when I heard the 55-year sentence, it, you know, it just confirmed what I already, you know, thought was going to happen and that, you know, the fight to get me out would have to happen on appeal, you know. And, and you know, and, but when I heard him call on the president, I didn't know. I knew he thought the sentence was unjust. He said, you know, in the very beginning, uh, like eight months before the sentencing, he said the sentence appears to be cruel, unjust and irrational. Um, and he trying to find a way out. So but when he sentenced me and he said that, you know, I call on the president to commute the sentence to something more, you know, more reasonable and, and more just, you know, that gave me some hope. Um, you know, I didn't I, I didn't have a lot of confidence in Bush. Um, you know, because, you know, Bush was not uh, somebody who was courageous and, and, and super merciful, um, and his, neither was his staff. Um, so I really didn't think there was much of a chance there. 
my hope was, you know, in the next administration, um, because when I got sentenced, you know, Bush just won re-election. And so I, we were stuck with him for another four years. Um, and so, you know, my hope was in the appellate court. Um, but while we were, you know, working on appealing this, um, we were building uh, support from as many people as possible. And it was growing every day. You know, we had 163, you know, former DOJ officials, former uh, federal judges. Um, and then, you know, we, we just kept building and, and building support and, and just trying to get as many people behind, you know, my case as possible um, to get me out. Now, and that and that's really interesting to hear this this major bipartisan effort, and I want to get into that in a moment. But I want to ask you: so, when you went to jail, what was the prison experience like? Especially considering what you went in there for. You're in there with hardened criminals, murderers. You're in there with real drug kingpins, people who are probably made millions or hundreds of thousands of dollars selling drugs and murderers and all this other stuff. What was that experience like for you? Were you afraid for your life or? What was it? No, I wasn't afraid for my life, but I was because, you know, this I was young and I was hard headed. And, um, you know, but when I when I got to prison, I was expecting to go to like a camp or like a low security prison. Um, when the bus pulled up to, to Lompoc, um, there's three prisons there. There's a camp, which is basically you're not you don't even have a, a gate to hold you in. You don't have like a fence. You know, you can wander around. You know, it's pretty you know, low, it's pretty low key. Like you can, you know, pretty much do what you want. Um, and then they have a low security that is, you know, has a fence, but you know, it's really lax. Then you got the USP, which is a maximum security where they send people with life and, and violent, you know, offenses. And when the bus stopped at the camp, you know, I heard the driver say, I got one person for the camp. The rest are going to the USP. And I'm like, that's gotta be me. You know, I'm not, it's a marijuana charge. You know, I've been, never been to prison. You know, I had a juvenile gun charge, but it was expunged. So under the system, I was treated as a first offender. So, you know, I'm getting up like, that's got to be me. And then I look to the side of me and I see this square, you know, little young white kid that was talking about he was in there for, you know, like some kind of computer case that he got one year. And when I looked at him like, shit, I'm dead, dude. That's him. That's his spot. He's getting out here, not me. I got too much time. You know, because usually you got to have under 10 years to go to a camp. And, you know, because I had a 55-year sentence, I was considered a, a public safety risk. And at the, with the camp, you can walk off and leave if you want. You know, you just escape. You just walk home, you know, um, and then they'll put out a warrant for you. So it's not really a big deal because the campers are considered minimal risk. Um, and so, you know, when I walked in the USP, it looked like everything you see in the movies. Um, it was a very dangerous prison. Um, it, it was crazy. And I was like, shit, all this for, you know, $900 worth of weed. Like it was just, I can't believe this. Um, and I just had to do my best to adjust to it, you know, and, and, you know, put, uh, put my, bury myself in law books so I could figure out, you know, how I got here and how I'm going to get myself out. And, and just a point of clarification, cause I, I heard you mention that it was $300 worth of weed. And I heard you mention it was 900. Was it 300 times, you know, multiple times you gave them the, the three. The, Three hundred three times. So he, oh, he got okay, that's what it was. So three, he got three hundred dollars worth on three occasions. Okay, got you. Okay, now I hear that. All right, so you ended up being released from prison in 2016 due to a remarkable bipartisan effort. Can you walk us through what that looked like? Because you were in there for quite a while before you were ever released. So what was that that time like in in between? So you know, I spent most of my time thinking I'm getting out that year. Um, you know, we had to prepare for an appeal. When I first went to prison, you know, I think I was in there for a year. 
before our appeal, you know, was ready for decision. And, and we thought we were winning. We had oral arguments. The appellate court was scolding the prosecutor, you know, telling him, you know, he's ridiculous for thinking the sentence is just. And more importantly, there was an illegal search and seizure where they used illegally seized evidence to convict me at trial. And that's was my best hope for coming home because, yeah, so they, 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 they entered one of my homes without a search warrant and they took all this evidence that made me look like I was a gang member. And that's really what they wanted the jury to see me as, like this violent gang member. And they used a lot of hip hop stuff. They even actually rapped lyrics at my trial. The prosecutor rapped lyrics at, in his closing argument. He began his closing argument rapping lyrics from a Mac Dre song that I produced and, you know, suggesting to the, the jury that that's what this case is all about. And so, you know, they, they put up pictures of like the LBC East side, like Snoop clothing and said, this is gang attire. Um, you know, the LBC stuff, East siders, you know, all this stuff was, um, you know, all hip hop gear, you know, and they put up pictures of like Tupac and a vest and 50 cent in a vest and was just like, you know, this man is dangerous. They would put those pictures up next to, you know, other, you know, like firearms and stuff like that to make the jury, you know, fear, fear me. And they did a good job because the first day at trial, one of the jurors expressed safety concerns to the judge. And that's when I knew I was going to be hit at trial. Um, and so, you know, they, you know, it, it, was, it was just a, a, you know, it was a terrible, uh, terrible trial. The government just went out of their way just to, you know, win the case. They w wanted to win at all costs. Um, and so, um, so yeah, so, you know, back to, back to the, the prison setting, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there and I got this 55 year sentence. I'm in a maximum security penitentiary. Um, and there's people around me that are killers, you know, people are getting stabbed. It's just a crazy prison setting, like you see in the movies. And, you know, I had to just, you know, really bury myself in the books. We had, you know, my first appeal where the court of appeals appeared as though they were going to throw out my conviction and give me a new trial. And when it came time for decision, you know, they flipped the script completely and actually took shots at my judge. So they really looked at this as like, we don't want judges doing what, no, the, no, the, no, the higher court, the higher court who we, we appealed to the higher court to try to get my trial um, overturned so I can get a new trial. Because if I got a new trial, there's no way they can convict me because now we know all the flaws in their case that they used to convict me on BS charges. And so there were these enhancements that they made up at the last minute. And that's really what triggered the, 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 the long sentence. And so, you know, we basically knew, you know, how flawed their case was, you know, their witnesses were lying, the agents were lying, the prosecutors were hiding evidence. We found the evidence. And so a new trial, there's no way they could win. I would go home after the trial, be free. And so, um, you know, they did everything they could to paint me as this bad guy if the appellate court lets me go that you know the streets are going to be unsafe now like it was just really a crazy crazy uh kangaroo court and so you know the judges appeared in the beginning they were going to throw out my conviction when it came time for decision they reversed course and they took shots at my judge in the entire opinion basically stating that he um he uh what he like uh he didn't take the case serious enough he you know he severely undermined the seriousness of my offense um, and just completely flipped the script from what they were talking about at the oral arguments and said that, you know, they basically wanted to discipline my judge and tell him, you know, like, don't do this. This is not how we get down as judges. And he, he wouldn't listen to them. He kept speaking out. 
testified before Congress, um, and and other judges followed his uh, his suit. Other judges, you know, uh, did what he did and started reaching out to the jury and, and started looking at these sentences and you know, to wondering if they're even just or not and find trying to find ways around them. And so, so yeah, so I ended up losing the first appeal, and then we took it to the Supreme Court, which was denied in two thousand seven. And then, you know, the really the campaign for clemency began. Meaning, meaning they didn't take the case up. That's what you're saying when you said it was denied. Yeah, they, didn't they, take they, the case they, up. they almost did because in order to go to the Supreme Court, you got to have four votes of the nine Supreme Court justices. Four justices have to vote in favor of it. They three, they twice delayed my case. They had a vote, I think, three times. The first two times they couldn't come to a decision which is crazy because the Supreme Court only takes about 80 cases out of like literally tens of thousands every year. And so there was, uh, you know, uh, some justices there that were obviously interested in my case. And so they kept delaying it, um, you know, delaying a decision. And finally, they on the third vote, they, they I didn't get four justices to vote in my favor and they didn't hear it. And so, um, you know, now now our focus needs to be clemency with the president. And, you know, my case was really framed for clemency because my judge's opinion, um, you know, really framed this um, for for a clemency case. And so, you know, we were just really waiting for Bush to get out of office. And, you know, we made a run with him at the last, you know, his last few months, which wasn't successful. Um, And then, um, you know, when Obama was elected, you know, I thought for sure this is it. It's over with. Um, But he didn't do anything for his first four years, first six years, actually. And so, you know, I had to sit in there. For all those years waiting for Obama to to take some action uh, for his administration. And it was really frustrating that, you know, uh, such a progressive administration did nothing for the first four, you know, five, six years. Um, And then in 2000, and um, I think it was 2000 and late 2013, the very end of 2013, I think it was December, he commuted eight sentences and launched a clemency program. That's when, you know, it really heated up for us. And uh, we had a you know, a letter that went to him that was signed by, you know, uh, hundreds of, of people from, you know, the entertainment industry, you know, political figures. And then my case became the poster child for a, a criminal justice reform bill that Rand Paul or not Rand Paul, Rand Paul, you know, he brought up my case before the Senate, but it was a bill that Mike Lee and Cory Booker were pushing. And and so, five, yeah, five senators, five U.S. senators were talking about my case during these Senate hearings um, and even my prosecutor's boss, who, who he left the, the, the U.S. attorney's office, he was the, the head prosecutor there. He actually testified before Mike Lee and said that my sentence was wrong and unjust. And so now I had the support of not only five senators, I had the support of my prosecutor's boss and my judge and, you know, all these former, you know, officials. And so, you know, that's really when the campaign to get me out really heated up. Now, it's interesting because I've been hearing how you you talked, uh, you know, about something like folks that are really tough on crime. Republicans have always been really tough on crime. But really, Republicans were a saving grace for you. If, if I'm hearing it correctly, uh, you've had bipartisan support with the former members of the DOJ. And I'm a conservative, too. So, of course, I'm going to mention this kind of thing. Right. So you've had bipartisan members of the DOJ who were helpful. Senator Mike Lee, as I understand it, and you correct me if I'm wrong, as I understand it, he was the person who put um, your pardon before uh, Barack Obama in the White House um, for clemency, pardon, whatever. So so the Republicans have been helpful in this fight and in this journey for criminal, ju- criminal justice reform, especially for for you and others like you. 
Absolutely. So, you know, my judge was, a, you know, a Federalist Society judge. And so he was one of the super conservative. He was so conservative that he fought for the, to the, for the Supreme Court to overturn Miranda rights. He fought to get rid of the exclusionary rule that says if, if agents violate your Fourth Amendment rights, that they can still use the evidence, evidence against you. So if agents come in your house with no warrant and just start looking and find drugs, my judge thought they could still use it against you. It didn't matter. And that's how conservative he was. And that's what made some conservatives listen to him. And like, maybe we got this wrong. Maybe we are. And he made a real strong conservative case for criminal justice reform. And so a lot of people like Chuck Grassley and, and others and Mike Lee, especially, this is why Mike Lee got in criminal justice reform because of my judge. And so, you know, and, and being prosecuted in such a conservative state, you know, the only people that could help me was Mike Lee and Orrin Hatch and Orrin Hatch waited until after all these other people came out to help me before he opened his mouth. And so um, really, Mike Lee, I, I credit him for, my, for why I'm free right now and why I was subsequently parted by President Trump. Um, and so, you know, I, I got to give a lot of credit to Mike Lee and the conservatives and, you know, the Koch brothers, obviously, they joined Mike Lee's call um, to, you know, get me out of jail. And so, you know, it was, and, and there was other, you know, it was bipartisan because we had Cory Booker and, and some entertainers. But, you know, Mike Lee, I think, is really what got me over the finish line because Mike Lee made me the poster child for reform and, and argued that I never should have gotten the sentence because yeah, there was a, there was an incorrect interpretation under the law um, that, that never should have you know happened in my case uh, because the Supreme court incorrectly interpreted the statute. And so the first step act clarified that now prosecutors cannot seek and, 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 and get a 55 year sentence for someone like myself ever again, it's over with. And so, you know, when I got out, you know, in, in, in 2016, you know, we got a couple people out under Obama's administration. And when Trump was elected, we were like, OK, look, you know, it's going to be four years before we get anything done. And surprisingly, we were invited to the White House um, to, for the prison reform summit. And so, you know, I developed a relationship with the Trump administration um, with my friend, Jerron Smith, who was actually a part of the Coke network before that. Um, and then ultimately Ivanka. And so, you know, me and Jerron worked on started working on clemency. And so after we passed the first step act, you know, we shifted our attention to clemency and, you know, I started working with Jared's office and Ivanka Trump. And, you know, we were able to get 12 people out of prison who were serving life for marijuana. Um, and so on Trump's last day, he commuted, you know, the tw we, we, we submitted this letter with this list um, and I hand delivered it. You know, I, I went to the white house many times and, you know, I hand delivered this list and we had a letter that was signed by governors and, prosecutors and, and NBA stars. And, you know, I had, we had a list of individuals that had unjust cannabis sentences. And on his last day, he granted 12 of them. And he also granted another case that I actually, um, you know, advocated. I brought Snoop into the fold uh, to, and, you know, introduced him to Ivanka Trump. And, you know, we, we got Harry O out, the co-founder of Death Row Records. And that was a case that, you know, we worked with. And, you know, Alice Johnson was huge, you know, huge help on. Um, and so, you know, we got a lot done in the Trump administration um, and, you know, we're just trying to continue that, you know, onto this administration. And, you know, that's why I was pardoned, you know, last December um, by President Trump because of the work that I had done on the First Step Act and, and, and elsewhere. Yeah, I'm, I'm really happy to, to hear all the work that you had been doing. And I've worked on the First Step Act, too. I was on Capitol Hill lobbying the passage of that that particular bill. But the Trump administration, I think probably if they were to 
leave and you think about legacy, real and true legacy, one of the things I think that Donald Trump can certainly hold his head up high and and say that he's proud is on the criminal justice reform efforts because I think he, along with Mike Lee and others, had really opened the eyes of conservatives across the country as to what was really going on. I, I, we we got to have fairness when it comes to justice. It can't it can't just be, you know, we're going to throw the book at you. You got to examine every case with detail. And one of the things that I was so disappointed with with the Clinton administration is the fact that and this wasn't cannabis. Of course, this was the distinction between crack cocaine and cocaine. And the sentencing commission sent a report saying that there was a racial disparity and they didn't do anything about it. And we've seen that time and time again with. Uh, a, a number of these, as you mentioned, progressive administrations, not now, though. I mean, they're letting everyone out. But certainly during that during that area, when we're talking about what's fair, what's just and what they and they seemingly didn't really move on those issues. But Donald Trump did. Do you maintain a relationship with the former president to this day? I'm not him, but I still uh, have contact with Ivanka um, here and there. Um, and, you know, just the fact that, you know, him and Snoop have this crazy beef. Um, you know, and we were able to sort of, you know, squash that. Um, and we were able to get that sort of squash, you know, uh, and, and get some work done, you know, before they left, um, you know, I thought was, was pretty, was, was pretty amazing. And so, um, so yeah, you know, we, we got a lot done under the administration and, you know, the first step back has resulted in, you know, the release of 16,000 people. Yeah, I know that was crazy. So, yeah, I think it was one of the biggest reforms, you know, since 1970, really, um, if you look at, the, at, the, at all the different uh, mandatory minimums that were reformed, um, you know, I think it was, you know, the biggest, uh, uh, you know, um, reform since then. And, you know, we got to keep going. And, you know, we're trying to get some work done under this administration. And, you know, I know it's it's starting off a little slow, um, but, you know, we're hoping to continue going. And recently we launched the Cannabis Freedom Alliance with um, <clears throat> the Cokes um, and Snoop and, you know, making it bipartisan uh, in order to get more Republicans. Right. And I want to ask you about that in, in, a, in a moment, because that, that's a huge deal. And that's one in which uh, you definitely should be congratulated on getting the, the attention of Charles Koch. We're talking to Weldon Angelos, the new face of criminal justice reform. We've got much more with him right after a quick break. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid Mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indulge your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. 
And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Since being released, you have become one of the major faces, of course, of criminal justice reforms. What are your your goals for changing the system right now? Right now, I think, you know, I mean, one of my biggest efforts is ending this hypocrisy of allowing large corporations and mostly older, you know, white entrepreneurs, you know, allowing them to make millions while keeping, um, you know, people incarcerated for doing the same thing and predominantly people of color. It's a crazy hypocrisy. You know, I know someone that's serving 60 years for a marijuana offense um, while, you know, these corporations are allowed to make millions for doing the same thing. And they're both violating federal statute. You know, it's still illegal, even though the states have passed, you know, different laws, it's still illegal federally. And they're not charging them. They're picking and choosing, you know, the winners and losers. And, you know, it's just wrong. And so I think, you know, we need to end the federal ban and let the states decide. And that way people can vote with their feet. Um, and, you know, the federal prison system is, is filled up with, you know, thousands of people, you know, in there for, you know, nonviolent cannabis charges while they're watching, you know, the, the state after state legalize. And so, you know, that was my whole purpose for, you know, starting that, that alliance, um, because we need to we need to pass federal legislation that deschedules marijuana on the federal level. Um, and, and as far as other criminal justice, you know, where we're trying to get passed you know, various different criminal justice bills, because there's still a lot of work to, to be done. We have to make the, the changes in the First Step Act retroactive. Um, and that's something that, you know, Mike Lee's a big champion on. Um, the statute that gave me 55 years is not retroactive. The people that, you know, there's people still in there serving, you know, longer sentences than I had for the same type of conduct because that was not retroactive. And so, you know, we couldn't get it done at the time because of Tom Cotton and, and Ted Cruz, you know, who flip-flopped on the issue. And so, you know, now, you know, we, we have a bill that, that, that made out a committee and, you know, we got to try to get that passed through the Senate. Now, uh, switching gears a little bit, Charles Koch, the billionaire libertarian who has spent a fortune on political causes. He's now actively funding efforts to the tune of twenty five million dollars to end federal marijuana prohibition. Now, I know. You're a big part of the reason, at least from what I've read, you're a, a good part of the reason why his eyes was open to this. And you reached out to Charles Koch and asked him if he would partner with you in terms of having fairness in the in the system here, especially when what marijuana is viewed to decriminalize it. Uh, what is that relationship like and why did you choose to reach out to him? That That's a very interesting person to reach out to. Yeah. So, um, you know, when I had gotten out of jail, I, we had we had a South by Southwest event and I connected uh, Charles Koch and his team with Snoop trying to get more work done. You know, we just had a, a Republican president take office and, you know, we needed to try to work together to get things done. And interestingly, is that was the week that the Snoop and Trump beef really kicked off. And so it made it kind of hard because 
you know, uh, uh, what, what's the uh, Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz were telling the Cokes, don't do the event with Snoop because he just made that video, you know, about Trump. And so it was really hard, you know, but we, we still did the event and, you know, we started, you know, I'm trying to bring my entertainment friends over, you know, to D.C. And, and, and meet with, you know, political figures, even take them to the Trump White House so we can really get some reform done. And so, you know, Snoop and the, and the Coke started, you know, working together because of, you know, my introduction. And um, we had a Zoom call last August. I had just gotten a uh, loon out from Bad Boy Records, uh, P. Diddy's rapper. And so we wanted him to come on this event. And I had uh, Snoop, Snoop come on. I didn't well. realize Loon went to jail. Huh? Yeah, Lou was. I didn't, you know, I didn't know that. Lou he went he to had a four, fourteen-year sentence, um, and so and and you know he and when I got out, a lot of hip hop industry reached out to me for help. You know, I, uh, Harryo, you know, Death Row because of my connection there. Um, you know, and that was a Snoop's request. And then you know, Loon from Bad Boy, um, Rollo, who's an Atlanta rapper, working to get him out with Drake, working with Drake and others to get him out. Um, and Ty Dolla Sign's brother. And so a lot of people in hip hop reached out to me for help. And so we, you know, I, I spent about 18 months trying to get Loon out. Um, and, you know, I, I took his case to the white house and they were this close to granting his clemency and then the riots and the, uh, what was you know, he like in the, for? Um, he was in there for just a nonviolent drug offense. He made an introduction to two people who went on to do, you know, some drug deals and he got caught up in the conspiracy law and so he had a 14-year sentence, and, you know, he, we were very close to getting him clemency. And then, you know, that's when everything really kicked off and with the pandemic and everything else. Um, and so they had to shift their attention away from criminal justice. And so I used the First Step Act to get him out to the court system. And so when we got him out, um, you know, we had this event with the Cokes, and, you know, I invited Snoop on. And me and Charles and Snoop had a one-on-one -on, -one on this uh, Zoom, private Zoom call and, you know, this is like, you know, when, you know, something, you know, and, and the idea in my head, based on something Charles said uh, about the need to, you know, end the war on, on cannabis, you know, a light bulb in my head went off, like, why don't I reach out to them? Because I'm in the middle of trying to, you know, end prohibition. And so I reached out to his team. Um, actually, we're at the Hill America tour um, uh, in, in Atlanta last year. And, you know, that was, it had the Cokes there. It had Doug Deason, a good friend of mine. Um, and you know, that's when I brought it up to him for the first time, like, you know, we'd like to get your help in this. And, you know, they were honest. They're like, you know, we had never considered getting into this issue or, you know, supporting the more act it, you know, something we've never considered, you know, let us think about it. And, you know, it, it, it took some months, you know, and then, you know, I think sometime in like February, they said, yes, let's do it. Um, and then we were happy, you know, because Charles has a lot of influence over Republicans. And then by coming out publicly, in favor of legalization, it gives other Republicans cover to say, you know what, I agree with this. Because we, we speak to a lot of Republicans that are like, you know, prohibition's stupid. I just don't know that I'm ready to come out publicly and say I support it. Um, now it's easier, you know, because, you know, we got different, uh, you know, Republicans like Charles, like, you know, um, you know, Mike Lee and others that are saying, you know, states should have the right to, to do what they want with regard to their drug laws. And so um, Charles is a perfect ally. I mean, you know, they... His, his team spends, you know, millions every election cycle. I, I felt like, you know, with that, um, you know, that some of these lawmakers are going to listen to him. Yeah. And, and of course, uh, Mr. Koch has been one who's been responsible for a number of Republican wins. And at one time and probably still now is the biggest funder of Republican causes in candidates. So to say that you reached out to him, I think is a, and he answered is a huge, huge deal. And certainly your, your work with Snoop Dogg, 
bringing them along for the ride on a cultural standpoint to, to have these kind of conversations are really important. But let me ask you this question. Out of all the things you've experienced, 13 years in jail, the entire experience, now you're uh, a figure that's really well-known in criminal justice. You're working with billionaires. You're working with celebrities to help other people get out of jail. Donald Trump was the was the help and to, to push that along. Let me ask you this very important question. Out of all of that and all these experiences that you that you had, do you regret selling the that marijuana those three times? Do you regret it? No, I mean I don't regret it um, from that perspective. I regret it from you know losing my career and you know regret it from you know taking that 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 risk. Um, I don't regret it. I don't think anything's wrong with with cannabis. Um, you know it never should have been illegal in the first place. And it definitely should have never triggered, you know, a 55 year sentence. But at the end of the day, so much good has come out of, you know, that my case, you know, we, we, we were able to change federal law. We were able to do so much with regard to that. Um, so um, I don't regret it. Like I regret it from the perspective. I regret it from the perspective that, you know, doing that ruined, you know, my career. You know, I, my son's lost, you know, 13 years of, of their life with me and, you know, had to live in, in poverty because of it. So I definitely regret it from that perspective. But now you have uh, an alliance that you, you've uh, you've created. And can you tell us about your organization that you're, you're doing now in terms of changing the law, working with the Cokes and certainly your organization to change the law across the country federally and, and state by state as well? Yeah. So, you know, um, after we passed the First Step Act, I wanted to shift my attention to, you know, cannabis justice. And so we launched the Weldon Project, which is a 501c3. And then we launched uh, an initiative called Project Mission Green. And it's a clemency initiative, but really our goal is to end incarceration for marijuana offenses, especially on the federal level, um, and then shifting to the states. And so we launched that. And we've really been trying to engage people with influence, especially in the hip hop community, to get involved. And, you know, that's something we've been very successful at. We just launched a campaign with the rapper Russ. Um, and, um, and we, and we were, we're working with Drake on getting, um, you know, the the, uh, the uh, Biden administration to launch a cannabis clemency program. Um, and so, you know, really we're trying to unite, you know, the entertainment industries, whether it's athletes, um, you know, whether it's people in hip hop and bringing them to the table with other like minded people, you know, such as even conservatives, you know, Republicans trying to, you know, keep that unlikely allies coalition alive so we can keep making progress. Well, thank you so much for spending time with me today to talk about your case. I certainly read about it many years ago, and Senator Mike Lee was the person that was pushing it. He was also the person who wrote an op-ed, a pretty profound op-ed, uh, when the first step back was uh, uh, really being debated and talked about. And it was a response to Senator Tim Cotton, and his colleague, who's also a Republican, and him being having been a federal prosecutor, he was able to lay it out in a way that was understood from a legal perspective and wasn't necessarily political, but just the right thing to do. And I, I think I can I can absolutely appreciate that. I don't uh, me personally. I, I think that the law has to change. I think it should change, especially with all the things that are going state by state and Republicans, I believe, uh, should be very open to having those kind of conversations as they had with your case so thank you for spending this time with me and before we let you go is there anything you've got coming up any big projects that the folks at home should know about before you go and where should people go to follow your work 
Yeah, absolutely. So anyone, you know, wanting to, you know, get involved or just, you know, check out what we're doing, they can go to the weldonproject.org um, and, you know, sign up for our newsletter or they can follow us on Instagram at, at Project Mission Green. And yeah, we have a number of, you know, interesting projects coming up. Um, you know, we're about to launch a proclamation for justice um, that includes a very bipartisan group of people from, you know, across the entertainment um, and, you know, the political um, both political aisles, um, you know, we have Republicans, Democrats, independents, um, and, you know, entertainers, you know, from various uh, backgrounds that are, you know, signed on to this proclamation for justice that is, you know, urging President Biden to, you know, do not only what he said he's going to do, because um, he promised, you know, on the campaign trail that he was going to decriminalize cannabis and that he was going to, you know, uh, expunge records of everyone with uh, cannabis uh, uh, felonies. And so, you know, we, we're, we're going to keep him to that promise and we're going to continue, you know, keeping pressure on him to do something about it as soon as possible. Um, and then, um, you know, uh, we, we need to change it on the federal level as well, which is why, you know, we launched the Cannabis Freedom Alliance. And here we are talking about nonviolent. And I think that's a key question for folks at home. Nonviolent offenses uh, with regards to cannabis. So. I appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on and certainly wishing you well as you move forward in your alliance and and keeping these good folks like Ivanka Trump and everybody else uh, uh, together on this issue as we hopefully see real justice happen. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. I want to thank Weldon Edgelos again for a fascinating interview. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions for me, please email me at outloud at gingrich360.com and I'll try to answer them in our future episodes. And please sign up for my monthly newsletter at gingrich360.com slash outloud. You can also find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Parlor at Gianno Caldwell. And if you're interested in learning more about my story, please pick up a copy of my best-selling book titled Taken for Granted, how conservatism can win back the Americans their liberalism failed. Special thanks to our producer, John Cassio, researcher Aaron Klingman, and executive producers Debbie Myers, and of course, speaker Newt Gingrich, all part of the Gingrich 360 network. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. 
I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening.